Hello and welcome to the stunning history of today. I'm Tess. And I'm Steph. Long time no see, my child. <laughs> it actually has been such a long time. This is a problem when you have like work and lives and um you know, obviously we live very far away, so Yeah, not fun, but we're here now, so it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> we're fine now. Um, so this piece, it's a little longer than some of our other pieces. Probably not the longest, but it's a, it's a piece. So I think we'll just get right into it and start. On this day, the 11th of June, 1962, three inmates escape Alcatraz prison. <gasps> oh my god, I've, I think I've actually... Um... I've heard of inmates have actually escaped from Alcatraz, which is a surprise because surely right. it's impossible. Right? Like, uh, this yes. piece, but prison break episode. How exciting. Okay. We're ready? We're ready? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> look, uh, the FBI, by the way, obsessed, uh, went on their website to get information about this because go to the source. And I love this little. Um, description of Alcatraz. So, located on a lonely island in the middle of San Francisco Bay, Alcatraz, also known as The Rock, apparently you've never heard of it being called The Rock before, but cool, uh, had held captives since the Civil War. But it was in 1934, the high point in, of a major war on crime, that Alcatraz was refortified into the world's most secure prison. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Just need some sort of theme music. Okay. So um, its eventual inmates included dangerous public enemies like Al Capone and George Machine Gun Kelly, uh, criminals who had a history of escapes. It was the place you sent people who escaped, basically. Like, it doesn't matter what the crime was. If you went to prison and you escaped, they'll be like, okay, you can go to the unescapable place now. <laughs> like, we, we're, we're done with this. We don't want to deal with this. Go over there. Imagine your unfortunate luck that, like, what if you're innocent, but you just couldn't get it proven? You get sent to a prison. You're like, no, I can't be here. I don't belong here. You break out, which in itself is a crime. And then they're like, well, you're done messed up. So Alcatraz, no way, no. <laughs> Literally. So, in the 1930s, the redesign included tougher iron bars, a series of strategically, bless me, strategically positioned (laughs) guard towers and strict rules, including a dozen checks a day of the prisoners. Being surrounded by the rough and cold waters of the Pacific, escape seemed near impossible. It's like... The, the impossible to break out of prison. <laughs> Despite the odds, <laughs> from 1934 until the prison was closed in 1963, 36 men tried on 14 separate occasions to escape. Nearly all were caught or didn't survive the attempt, except for these three inmates that we're talking about today, which remains a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've definitely heard this one before because it's so familiar and I think I know what happened vaguely to two of them. Oh, okay. But I'm obviously not going to say anything. So, <laughs> so I, uh, the three inmates, well, actually four were involved. We'll get to that tea later, but we'll go through the different pieces that were involved in this escape. So we have <laughs> Frank Lee Morris, who was born on September 1st, 1926. He was born in Washington, D.C., 
<laughs> his parents abandoned him when he was 11, so he spent the rest of his childhood in foster homes as an orphan. He was convicted of his first criminal offence at 13, and by his late teens, he had been arrested for crimes ranging from narcotics possession to armed robbery. He spent most of his early years in jail serving lunch to prisoners. Later, he was arrested for grand larceny. Jeez, Tess, calm down. <laughs> grand larceny. Sorry. Grand larceny. Uh, in Miami Beach, car theft and armed robbery. Morris reportedly ranked in the top 2% of the general population in intelligence. As measured by an IQ test, apparently he had an IQ of 133. He served time in Florida and Georgia, then escaped from the Louisiana State Penitentiary. He was recaptured a year later while committing a burglary and sent to Alcatraz on January the 20th, 1960, as inmate AZ, or Z, I should say, 1441. That's our first piece. Next piece is actually related. John and Clarence Anglin. John was born on May 2nd, 1930. Clarence was born May 11th, 1931. It's like a year apart. Such tightness. They were born <laughs> into a family of 14 children in Donaldsville, Don Donaldsonville, Georgia. There we go. Their parents, George and Rachel, were seasonal farm workers. In the early 1940s, they moved the family to Ruskin, Florida, which is south of Tampa, where the truck farms and tomato fields provided a more reliable source of income. Each June they migrated north as far as Michigan to pick cherries. Clarence and John were reportedly inseparable as youngsters. They became skilled swimmers and amazed their siblings by swimming in the frigid waters of Lake Michigan as ice still floated on its surface. That detail will be important soon. <laughs> Why is she talking about swimming? <laughs> I mean, Alcatraz is a lonely island, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So, uh, Clarence was first caught breaking into a service station when he was 14 years old. The brothers began robbing banks and other establishments as a team in the early 1950s, usually targeting businesses that were closed to ensure that no one got injured. They claimed that they used a weapon only once during a bank heist, and it was a toy gun. In 1958, John Clarence and Alfred Anglin, another sibling, robbed the Columbia Savings Bank building in Columbia, Alabama. All received 35-year sentences, which they served at Florida State Prison, Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, <laughs> and then at Atlanta Penitentiary. <laughs> After repeated <laughs> attempts to escape from the Atlanta facility... John and Clarence were transferred to Alcatraz. John arrived on October 24th, 1960, as inmate AZ1476, and Clarence on January 10th, 1961, just a few months later, as inmate AZ1485. When, when I saw the word facility, it took me everything in me not to do a Moira from Schitt's Creek. Have you seen Shit's Creek? No. I've never seen it. No. I, it's on um, Netflix, isn't it? It's so funny. Moira's accent. Live for it. So that's three. This is number four. Alan West. He was born on March the 25th, 1929. So uh, Alan was born in New York City. Uh, he was arrested over 20 times throughout his lifetime. 
He was imprisoned for car theft in 1955, first at Atlanta Penitentiary. Now I've forgotten how to say that word. Penitentiary. <laughs> no, that was right. That was right. <laughs> I'm just having brain farts all night. Uh, then at Florida State Prison, after an escape attempt from the Florida facility, he was transferred <laughs> to Alcatraz in 1957 at the age of 28 and became inmate AZ1335. The four inmates all knew each other from previous incarcerations in Florida and Georgia. When they were assigned adjacent cells in December 1961, they began formulating an escape plan under the leadership of Morris, who was the first piece I talked about. Over the subsequent six months, they widened the ventilation ducts between their sinks using discarded saw blades found on the prison grounds, metal spoons from the mess hall, and and an electric drill improvised from the motor of a vacuum cleaner. So, wait, how how did they get their hands in the vacuum cleaner and how did they get away with the motor? Surely, if the vacuum cleaner is no longer working, the guys would be like, mm, interesting. <laughs> Why does this vacuum cleaner have no motor? <laughs> mm, it's not like a, a, an inmate would have taken it. Anyways, I'll no. just forget about it. Why would they steal a motor? Where are they trying to go? (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. The men concealed their work with painted cardboard and masked the noise with Morris's accordion on top of the ambient din of music hour. So they planned it. Yeah, okay, yeah. Your face is like, what? (laughs) What? What? Are they allowed to have an accordion in their room? So they have music hour. Okay, so this is what's coming into my head for music hour, right? So... Like guard yells out, guard yells out. It's uh, twelve. It's music hour. So what do all the inmates that have instruments in their rooms just, just get them out up and then just Let yeah, and then just like start tuning? And then there's just one guy who just happens to be the maestro, or like of all the inmates, just go right. Um, who knows this song? And then you just hear yeah. I don't know why I give them that voice. And then they just start playing. That's that's music time in my head. That's actually kind of fun. Not gonna lie. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that's what it is. But yeah, they um, yeah. they had music hour. You know what? Fair play. If it is the way that I said, then great. I can't imagine anything better whilst you're stuck there. But sure. Aside from freedom. But yeah. <laughs> Once the holes were wide enough to pass through, the men accessed the unguarded utility corridor directly behind their cell's tier and climbed to the vacant top level of the cell block where they set up a concealed workshop. Here, using over 50 raincoats among other stolen and donated materials, they constructed life preservers based on a design Morris found in the March 1962 issue of Popular Mechanics with the article, Your Life Preserver... How will it behave if you need it? Morris found other ideas in the in magazines, resin to make a lampshade in the November 1960 issue of Popular Mechanics, and signposts of water safety about channel buoys indicating course and navigation hazards in the May 21st, 1962 issue of Sports Illustrated. <laughs> They also assembled a 6 by 14 foot rubber raft, the seams carefully stitched by hand and sealed with liquid plastic available in the shops, and heat from the nearby steam pipes. Paddles were improvised from plywood and screws. Finally, they climbed a ventilation shaft to the roof and removed the rivets holding a large fan in in place. 
I just have to ask. Okay, so you said they found... No, 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 not found. They purchased liquid plastic at the shop. So, wait. No, no. I, <laughs> not like I, an actual shop, like as in like a workshop. The where prison they, Okay, I thought like, it was like the prison shop. I think, yeah, workshops where they do like carpentry and like when they have to mend things, I guess. Um, okay. But I they, it was just, you know, the prison were I like... I don't think... Oh, you, liquid plastic i don't think they would sell that to them it just sounds like alcatraz are like let's try to give them a head start it's just just messing with the prisoners the entire time that's what it sounds like of possible uses to escape but not all of them and so they'll feel like they have hope and then they realize they don't (laughs) exactly oh my god that's actually pretty genius of a prison if you ever run a prison that's what you should do (laughs) honestly but yeah so a bit creative in how they uh, were planning to escape and the different materials they had so the men concealed their absence while working outside their cells and after the escape itself by sculpting dummy heads from a handmade paper mache like mixture of soap toothpaste concrete dust and toilet paper and giving them a realistic appearance with paint from the maintenance shop and hair from the barber shop floor with towels and clothing piled under the blankets in their bunks and the dummy heads positioned on the pillows, they appeared to be sleeping. They really thought this through. That's pretty smart. Given yep. what they had, that's pretty smart. they resourceful, that's for sure. That's what's happening. <laughs> and like old school blankets under the, the bed sheets to make it look like there's someone there. <laughs> Bless them. So, we're on this day, the 11th of June, 1962, the escape from Alcatraz begins. On the night of June 11th, 1962, of all preparations in place, the men initiated their plan. West discovered that the cement he had used to reinforce crumbling concrete around his vent had hardened, narrowing the opening and fixing the grate in place in his cell. By the time he managed to remove it and rewiden the hole the others had left without him, he returned to his cell and went to sleep. <laughs> so, number four, bow, bow, didn't escape. Didn't even get the chance. <laughs> he just kind of went, oh, never mind. He was like, I went oh, back to bed. gone. You know what? This this is fine. I'll just go to sleep. <laughs> I tried. <sighs> so, okay, this might be a silly question. But when you go to Alcatraz, do you ever leave Alcatraz? Like, do the government say, okay, you've done your time, now you can leave? You know, that's a brilliant question, and I actually did not look that up. <laughs> didn't even I'm going to have a quick Google. I'm very curious. Right, guys, if you know, stick it in a comment on Instagram underneath the post <laughs> that this will be attached to, because I can't be that bothered to try and filter through for the next 15 minutes. Um, and... <laughs> Tess won't be doing the same either because we actually want to talk about this. So someone please do the research for us if you don't well, mind. If you, if you know, you know, and let us know then. Huh? Yeah. But I have a feeling, yeah, that they could. It was just to try and keep... Well, I mean, yeah, that's the tea. Okay, so we shall continue. From the service corridor, Morris and the Anglins climbed the ventilation shaft to the roof. Guards heard a loud crash as they broke out of the shaft, but nothing further was heard, and the source of the noise was not investigated. They were just like, "What was that?" Okay, nothing. That's cool. <laughs> it's it, this is such like a video game thing. Um, I don't remember which game it's from because it's been a while, but it's the one where you make a sound, the the NPC hears you and goes, "Ah, oh, must have been the wind," <laughs> and then they don't do anything. <laughs> 
It's fine. It's good. It must have been the wind. But I'm sure because they're on that island and I'm I would assume it's a pretty like windy, loud place to be that sometimes things will just randomly bang and crash. So I can't mm-hmm. fully be like, Yeah beasts, what were you doing? But Yep. Ha- uh, hauling their gear with them. They descended 50 feet to the ground by sliding down a kitchen vent pipe, then climbed two 12-foot barbed wire perimeter fences. At the northeast shoreline near the power plant, a blind spot in the prison's network of searchlights and gun towers, they inflated their raft with a concertina, which is like a little small handheld accordion, stolen from another inmate and modified to blow up the raft. At some time after 10pm, investigators estimated they boarded the raft, launched it, and departed toward their objective, Angel Island, two miles to the north. The escape was not discovered until the morning of June 12th, due to the successful dummy head ruse. (laughs) Those dummy heads worked a charm. Multiple military and law enforcement agencies conducted an extensive air, sea, and land search over the next 10 days. But on June 14th, the Coast Guard cutter picked up a paddle floating about 200 yards off the southern shore of Angel Island. On the same day and in the same general location, workers on another on another boat found a wallet wrapped in plastic, complete with names, addresses and photos of the Anglin's friends and relatives. On June the 21st, shreds of raincoat material believed to be the remnants of the raft were found on a beach not far from the Golden Gate Bridge. The following day, a prison boat picked up a deflated life jacket made from the same material about 50 yards off of Alcatraz Island. According to the final FBI report, no other physical evidence was found. So, the FBI uh, surmised early on that the men had drowned. They cited the fact that the individual's personal effects were the only belongings they had and the men would have drowned before leaving them behind. However, no human remains were found at the time. I don't fully understand that reasoning of, like, their personal effects were there any belongings that they had and the men would have had to have drowned before leaving them behind. But it's like, what if it fell out of his pocket while he was in the boat and he didn't realise? Mm-hmm. Like, this whole thing yeah. of, like, because it's here, he drowned. And, like, what if he dropped it? Like, <laughs> I don't fully understand. But anyway... So, on July 17th, a month after the escape, a Norwegian ship, SS Norfjell, sorry, (laughs) I don't know Norwegian very well, uh, spotted a body floating in the ocean 15 nautical miles from the Golden Gate Bridge. The ship did not retrieve the body and did not report the sighting until October. This happened in July. And in October, they were like, oh yes, by the way, we saw a dead body. (laughs) Wait, like... It wasn't like they... Hold on. They weren't on the boat until October, were they? No. So they were on a... They were there in July. Saw it. And I don't know whether it was when they got off the boat that they reported it or whether someone decided. Maybe we should have reported that. Like, (laughs) we had a conversation. Hey, Jerry, do you remember in July when we were near the Golden Gate Bridge (laughs) and we saw that body? And it's like, yeah. And it's like, well, what did... What did we do about it? Oh, nothing. Well, should we? Should we report it? Maybe. <laughs> that sounds really weird. I, maybe. I feel like, okay, I feel like maybe that was the case because all boats have radios on them 
for and like little morse codes like boom, 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 boom. yeah <laughs> yeah like we have even if you don't have radios you've got like the ability to send some morse code so i feel like they actually went oh yeah maybe we should tell someone about that or then like at the end like in october they had like a meeting and someone was like um did we do anything about that body and someone's like i thought you did no didn't you report- <laughs> no but i thought you were supposed to report it no i didn't report- <laughs> we're better reporter than honestly it's i don't like, know goddamn. my imagination running wild but anyway so <laughs> the san francisco county coroner henry turkle cast doubt on speculation that it could have been one of the escapees emphasizing the improbability that a body would still be floating on the surface of the ocean after more than a month mm-hmm. Instead, he proposed that the corpse may have been that of Cecil Philip Herman, a 34-year-old unemployed baker who had jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge five days earlier. Several Mm -hmm. coroners from the neighbouring counties challenged his opinion, stating that it was possible the remains belonged to one of the escapees. And this is the issue (laughs) with, like, scientists and specialists. Everyone has an opinion and everyone can prove it. So then what's true? What's the tea? FBI investigators announced their official position that while it was theoretically possible for the men to have reached Angel Island, the odds of them having survived the turbulent currents and frigid waters of the bay were slight. According to the final FBI report, West said that they had planned to steal clothes and a car upon reaching land, but no such thefts were reported in the immediate area. And West was the one who gave up and went to bed and didn't get to escape. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Uh, so West was the only conspirator not to participate and he fully cooperated with the investigation and was therefore not charged for his role. He, I mean, same. I'd be like, okay, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean to try and escape. I'll tell you everything I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So West was transferred to McNeil Island, Washington after Alcatraz uh, was deactivated is the word they used apparently in 1963 and later back to Atlanta after serving his sentence followed by two additional sentences in Georgia and Florida he was released in 1967 only to be arrested again because of course in Florida the following year on charges of grand larceny and at Florida State Prison he fatally stabbed another inmate in October 1972 in what may have been a racist hate crime because He's that kind of person, guys. He was serving multiple sentences, including life imprisonment on the murder conviction when he died of acute peritonitis. Peri- peritonitis. Peri- peritonitis. <laughs> 1978. It's a stomach thing. That's all I know. He had an issue with stomach. He died. So there's that's one piece gone. On December 16th, 1962, which was few months after the escape Alcatraz inmate John Paul Scott made water wings from inflated rubber gloves and swam a distance of 2.7 nautical miles which is about five kilometers or 3.1 miles sorry (laughs) from Alcatraz to Fort Point at the southern end of the Golden Gate Bridge he was found there by teenagers suffering from hypothermia and exhaustion. After recovering in Letterman Army Hospital, he was immediately returned to Alcatraz. Can you believe? He got out and he had to go back. (laughs) That's such a big thing to happen. He's uh, the only documented case of an Alcatraz inmate reaching the shore by swimming. Because Alcatraz cost more to operate than other prisons, apparently nearly $10 per prisoner per day, as opposed to $3 per prisoner per day, for example, at Atlanta... 
and because mm-hmm. 50 years of salt water saturation had severely eroded the buildings, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy ordered the facility to be closed on March 21st, 1963. The FBI closed its file on the escape on December 31st, 1979, after a 17-year investigation. Their official finding was that the prisoners most likely drowned in the cold waters of the bay while attempting to reach Angel Island. They cited the remnants found of the raft as well as the personal effects of the men as evidence that the raft broke up and sank at the same at some point and the three convicts succumbed to hypothermia with their bodies swept out to sea by the rapid currents of the San Francisco Bay. The FBI did hand the evidence over to the U.S. Marshal Service, whose investigation remains open. As Deputy U.S. Marshal Michael Dyke told NPR, there is an active warrant and the Marshal Service doesn't give up looking for people. <laughs> In 2009, Dyke said that he was still receiving leads on a regular basis. The warrant would expire in 2030, when all of the missing men would be at least 100 years old. Oh, I mean, if they're not... If they hadn't died then, they're definitely most likely dead now. I would say yes, most likely. (laughs) Unless they're one of those pieces that lives to 100. (laughs) (laughs) That's the general gist of it, but let's dig a little deeper. Let's get all the tea. Let's get all the information. So, reported sightings. Love this. Love the fact that I think some people were just like, I think I saw him. Turn out to not him. So... In January 1965, the FBI investigated a rumour that Clarence Anglin was living in Brazil. Agents were dispatched to South America but found no direct evidence that he was there. A man called the Bureau in 1967, claiming to have been Morris's classmate and to have known him for 30 years. He said he had bumped into him in Maryland and described him as having a small beard and moustache but refused to give further details. So why would you bother calling? It's like, I saw him, but I'm not going to tell you much else. I mean, he might have a small bit of mustache. But anyways, it's like, what? So why did you bother? Yeah, it's like, I think, I what's think... the point of like telling them like, he's in Maryland? And it's like, okay, but where? He's in Maryland. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> tell us where he is. Hangs up the phone. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like, that's not helpful. So family members of the Anglin brothers occasionally received postcards and messages over the years. Most were unsigned. One was signed Jerry and another Jerry and Joe. The family also produced a Christmas card uh, apparently received in the family mailbox in 1962 saying, To Mother from John, Merry Christmas. Another of the Anglin's 11 siblings, Robert, also said that sometimes the phone would ring and all that could be heard was breathing on the other end robert said i suppose all that could have been pranks but maybe it was my brothers like but when you say something like hi <laughs> like why can you completely yeah. silent anyway so the mother of the anglin brothers received flowers anonymously every mother's day until her death in 1973 and two i love this i love this Two very tall, unusual women in heavy makeup were reported to have attended her funeral. Oh my god, that's brilliant. <laughs> I don't I know love how the dedication. I don't know how true that is, and I just love the fact that what of these two women that no one else knew but were actually women who were her friends turned up and people <laughs> were like, Do you reckon that's her sons? <laughs> like, <laughs> anyway. 
So federal officials say that in the mid to late 60s and into the 70s, there were six or seven sightings reported of the Anglin brothers, all in North Florida or Georgia. Roberts said that in 1989, when the father of the Anglin brothers died, two strangers in beards showed up at the funeral home. According to Robert, they stood in front of the casket looking at the body for a few minutes. They wept, then they walked out. <laughs> Come on. Maybe. We maybe. know that's... It's gotta be. Like, the mother dies, two giant ladies turn up. <laughs> Not saying, like, like you know, women can't be super tall, of course, but... Come on, two of them? And we hadn't seen two brothers in a while, and heavy makeup. Obviously, if they're guys, they're not back then they're not gonna know how to do makeup very well or maybe they have someone who's like we gotta really cover that face up because <laughs> goddamn, you got a giant beard there johnny boy <laughs> bless honestly in 1989 a woman who identified herself only as kathy called unsolved mysteries tip line to report that a photo of clarence anglin matched the description of a man who lived on a farm near mariana florida mariana florida maybe Another woman also recognised a photo of Clarence Anglin and said he lived uh, in that same area. She correctly identified his eye colour, height and other physical features. Another witness claimed that a sketch of Frank Morris bore a striking resemblance to a man she had seen in the same area. So all these sightings over all these years. So a few more different claims and a few more different things that make you go, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> like, <ooh. laughs> A day after the escape, a man claiming to be John Anglin called a lawyer, Eugenia McGowan, in San Francisco to arrange a meeting with the U.S. Marshal Marshal's office. When McGowan refused, the caller terminated the phone call. I don't know how likely that is. I don't know why you would escape and then call a lawyer. Yeah. Anyway, Robert Chechi. Chekchi, maybe? A San Francisco police officer said that at 1am on the morning of June 12th, he saw an illegal boat in the bay near Alcatraz. A few minutes later, the boat left, heading under the Golden Gate Bridge. This led to speculation that the prisoners might have enlisted outside Confederates to pick them up. The FBI dismissed this account out of hand. Don't know why. They just didn't believe it. They're like, nah. <laughs> It's like that's really weird like well, surely you'd want to investigate all the leads to make sure that you catch the guys you know what's like they just it's almost <laughs> like they had a train of thought and they didn't want to budge you know <laughs> you know those crime those police stories where they're like we know what's happened it's this it's nothing else and even though they have evidence and tips and possibilities mm -hmm. they go nope it's this one thing because <laughs> that's my idea that's what happened. No <laughs> questions. Thank you. You know, it's funny you say that because I've seen, I like crime documentaries as much as the next person. And I've seen um, like uh, ex-officers and FBI, etc. And when they get questioned about this particular case and, mm. you know, what do you think happened? And they go, it was this. It, it couldn't be anything else. It's like, but... Yeah. The, but, but the lady in the last scene just said this and that makes plausible sense and I get that they like maybe it's a thing that they're trained to do that you know you'll you'll get tips and you'll get um, clues and stuff like that and honestly it could just be nothing it could just be someone wanting to mess with you guys or maybe they think they've seen something but it actually wasn't that at all 
and I, I don't know I'm not an FBI agent and honestly I'd rather just go with my gut instinct on a lot of things but if I am looking for someone and someone said I've seen this person and has given me a proper description even down to a distinguishing mark or something like that and says this person is in the next state I'm not gonna go oh I don't know um I don't think so <laughs> I think you're wrong and maybe you're seeing things do you want to see a psychiatrist instead you know <laughs> like no like try to fo- I know it's it's probably a waste of resources and it's probably a case of um mistaken identity in a lot of cases but at the same time what if one or several of these were correct over the years and they just didn't do anything mm, literally but also the fact that this was a police officer. So it's not like a completely random person was like, oh, I think I saw a boat. It was like a police officer being like, I saw a boat. And then being like, no, no child, you didn't see a boat. They're dead. <laughs> they drowned. <laughs> they didn't make it to the bay. Do you remember that wallet we found? Yeah, they, def- they definitely drowned. Yeah, they definitely drowned, yes. Yeah. That's the tea with like the whole documentary thing. Because I can't tell you which one because I watched like two a week. <laughs> it, was, it was a crime documentary where like, it was about how someone was found guilty and they revisited the case and with DNA and everything, they could reinvestigate and they found out that this person is actually innocent because DNA's like, they could prove it wasn't them. And mm-hmm. one of the police officers who was involved was like, I still think it's them. And it's like, but they, the DNA literally is not there. It's like, how could it, how could they possibly have done this crime when you have like DNA of the killer and it doesn't match? Like, anyway. I don't get it. It's it's the kind of thing where like someone is so far invested into something they can't believe any other possibility even if the evidence is right there in front of it's them. Like and it's the, not just for cases yes, for everything. It's like the flat earther mentality of like even oh. have you seen those documentaries when like they're trying oh to prove God. it's prove it's flat and the evidence proves it's not and like it's okay we'll try something else and it's like no <laughs> you're just ignoring evidence. And this Literally. is, like, and it's also, I think, the mentality of some people can't admit they're wrong, and it's mm-hmm. like it's okay to admit that you got it wrong as long as like you fess up to it and, and like, well, I've learned from it, and now mm-hmm. I can see. But I also think some people are worried they're going to get attacked if they turn on and go, "Oh, I was wrong." Do you know what I mean? Anyway. But that doesn't make sense. You're going to get attacked even more if you continue on this like delusional rampage of no, no, no. What I what I'm saying is correct. Like, but there is mm. evidence of a scientific nature that has been proven again and again over decades, and you're still going to turn around and say that you think you're right. Like that is how people get attacked. If you turn around and say, you know what, I was wrong. You know what, I respect you for actually saying that you were wrong. That's it. We can all move on. We mm. never have to revisit this ever again. You don't have to get attacked. You can move on with your life. Whatever you're feeling, it's going to be gone. Alleviated. Boom. Done. Yeah. But if you continue on this, like, I believe the earth is flat. You know what? If the earth is flat, just just walk off the edge of it and be done with it. Like, I don't want to have to deal with this conversation <laughs> ever again. Why it's just never, ridiculous. Ever, why has no one ever worked, worked, walked, gone, been to the end of the world mm-hmm. if it's flat I, I don't know where I saw it I think it must have been in a documentary or something and they were trying to do experiments to prove it's flat and my favorite part of it this is a tangent sorry but my favorite part mm-hmm. of it is that like she were being really scientific about they're like okay so to prove it's flat we know that th- this amount of distance um, we're gonna put a light up and at the I've same yes at the same height yes! we're gonna put the light up at x amount of distance and if it's flat, we'll see that light. 
and they could not see the light and they tried so many different ways to prove that it was like flat and not curved and everything they yeah. did it just proved that the earth was curved and at the end they're like we'll try again and it's like the earth's not gonna get flatter <laughs> like, yeah. wasn't there one guy that was like you know what maybe maybe uh, there is a bit of a curve going on and i was like yes <laughs> yes he was he was slowly thinking to himself you know what maybe i was wrong the whole time yeah. and i thought oh my god one at a time you know i don't even care as long as we're combining yeah. them to the right type of science honestly i just i just loved that i was like this is hilarious okay moving on we're going back to our piece okay sorry yeah. hilarious um, so in 1993, a former Alcatraz inmate named Thomas Kent told the television program America's Most Wanted that he had helped plan the escape and claimed to have provided significant new leads to investigators. He said that Clarence's girlfriend had agreed to meet the men on shore and dro- drive them to Mexico. He declined to participate in the actual escape, he said, because he could not swim. Officials were skeptical of his account because he had been paid $2,000 for the interview. But also, like, if someone's like to you, Steph, you're going to be stuck in this prison for 40 years. This is your one chance to get out. We're going to get out of here. Do you want to come? What is the likelihood of you being like, no, thanks, I'm chill. I'll stay here. I would just be like, you know what? I I may as well take a chance. I could die in this prison or I could die out there. Either way, there is some form of death. I mean, he did say it's because he couldn't swim, but, like, Mate, they had they had life gut thingies, you know, preservers. Yeah, is what I'm trying to say. They had anyway. the opportunity. Plus, like with all this rubber that they were like accumulating over a period of time, there was nothing stopping them from actually making a suit so that it would like <laughs> keep the heat on the inside, so they wouldn't actually die of hypothermia. But anyway, it's, you know, science. Not everyone actually listens to the science part, but whatever. <laughs> Honestly, a man named. John Leroy Kelly dictated an extended deathbed confession to his nurse in 1993. This is wild. Kelly claimed that he and a partner picked up Morris and the Anglins in a boat and transported them to Seattle, Washington. Later, under the guise of transporting them to Canada, Kelly and his partner murdered the escapees to get the $40,000 their families had collected for them. At a location in Seattle where Kelly claimed the three escapees were buried, no human remains were found. So it's a bit like, don't know how true that is. But at the mm-hmm. same time, like, if you were to describe, like, oh, I buried them here and there's so much land, <laughs> like, you could yeah. easily miss them. Anyway, now back in back I, in I the mean, fall. It, that's right, though. It could, it could be a case of, like, you know, they were missed unless they, I don't know, maybe the, the directions were out by a mile or two or something. Mm. Or, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. This man was chatting. Breeze. I was going to say the other word, but I can't say it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a family podcast. <laughs> but, um, he could, <laughs> but like he could actually have just been lying to make it sound quite interesting. Or maybe there's like a half truth to that. You know, maybe it's like um, my partner killed men to get the money. But maybe that's that's like where the lie started maybe they actually did go off and in order to protect them because what if they were good friends in order to protect mm. them they said my partner killed them they're buried here we're done you believe that they're dead you can no longer search for them so it could be that because like, be if yeah because like if you and i escape for example or if like you escape prison and i went to go pick you up and then someone's questioning me like where's taz oh i killed her for the money and then i buried her here anyways dies 
like i'm not gonna reveal where you are <laughs> the only tea about that though is that it was in 1993 so at that point mm-hmm. bit bit late to really start you know trying to get people off the trail because i think at this point everyone had just given up <laughs> they were like oh yeah. whatever but but like you said then, this was a deathbed yeah. confession right so maybe yeah. he was just like this is the only way i can make sure that they're not hunted or protected even after all this time and they just kind of go um i'm dying by the way (laughs) and then they can't they can't question him about anything or chase anything up because he's dead so true true yeah fair enough um mythbusters we love in 2003 (laughs) on the discovery (laughs) channel tested the feasibility of an escape from the island aboard a raft constructed with the same materials and tools available to the inmates and concluded that it was possible. Hey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a 2011 documentary on the National Geographic channel entitled Vanished from Alcatraz reported that contrary to the official FBI report, a raft was discovered on Angel Island on June 12th, the day after, in 1962 with footprints leading away from it. I don't know how this stuff they're like, it wasn't in the report, but it was there. And it's like, but how do you, how do you know it was there? Like who told you, how do you, what, mm-hmm. who told you what? Anyway. So furthermore, a 1955 blue Chevrolet was reported stolen the same day in Marin County, a claim corroborated by stories in the newspapers of the time, including San Francisco examiner, the following day, a motorist in Stockton, California, um, 80 miles east of San Francisco, reported to the California Highway Patrol that they had, he had been forced off the road by three men in, the, in a blue Chevrolet. I mean, related, maybe not, possibly not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the same year, an 89-year-old man, Bud Morris, who claimed he was a cousin of Frank Morris said that on eight or nine occasions prior to the escape, he delivered envelopes of money to Alcatraz guards, presumably as bribes. He further claimed to have met his cousin face-to-face in San Diego Park, in a San Diego Park, shortly after the escape. His daughter, who was nine or eight at the time, said she was present at the meeting with dad's friend Frank, but had no idea about the escape. These things, I don't know, they're just hearsay. We'll see. A 2014 study of the ocean currents. I love this detail, by the way. People are like, I'm going to figure out if this is true. Because in 2014, <laughs> a study of the ocean currents by scientists at Delft University concluded that if the prisoners left Alcatraz at 11.30 p.m. on June the 11th, they could have made it to Horseshoe Bay, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, and that any debris would have floated in the direction of Angel Island, consistent with where the paddle and belongings were actually found. If they left before or after that time, they said tides and currents were such that their chances of survival were slim. So, who knows? A 2015 History Channel documentary entitled Alcatraz Search for the Truth presented further circumstantial evidence gathered over the years by the Anglin family. Kenneth and David Widner displayed Christmas cards containing the Anglin's handwriting and allegedly received by family members for three years after the escape. While the handwriting was verified as the Anglin's, none of the envelopes contained a postmarked stamp, so experts could not determine when they had been delivered. The family cited a story from family friend Fred Brizzy, 
who grew up with the brothers and claimed to have recognised them in Rio de Janeiro in 1975. They produced... I know, they're all over the world. (laughs) (laughs) They produced photographs uh, taken by Brizzy, including one of two men who, according to him, were John and Clarence Anglin, standing next to a large termite mound. Other photos showed a Brazilian farm that Brizzy claimed was owned by the men. Forensic experts working for the family confirmed that the photos were taken in 1975 and asserted that the two men were more than likely the Anglins, even though um, the age and the condition of the photo and the fact that both men were wearing sunglasses hindered efforts to make a definitive determination. Brizzy also presented an alternative escape theory. Here we go. Rather than use the raft (laughs) across the bay, He said they paddled around the island to the boat dock where they attached an electrical cord which was reported missing from the dock on the night of the escape to the rudder of a prison ferry that departed the island shortly after midnight and were towed behind it to the mainland. I don't know, man. Anyways, (laughs) I feel like that would be noticed, but whatever. I mean, would it, like, if, if they, I don't know... If they like weren't um, invisible colors or anything that's reflective or had any lights on them or whatever, then it would kind of make sense. Like just let the the boat get off a little bit of a distance, and then the rudder that was left behind, you have like a you have a window where you can just attach it, get onto the boat, and then have it be pulled out, mm. and no one would notice. So maybe like they got to the end because like with the momentum of the boat, you could easily get pulled very gently. Um, once the boat has stopped you can just keep going but Mm. they would have to have the case of like we get rid of the cord and then we have to unhook it from the boat as well but you know I I wouldn't put it past them they they thought in a lot of detail up to up to the very end so it could Mm. be a possibility possibly Uh, So Art Roderick, a retired deputy US marshal who had once headed the investigation and later worked with the Anglin family, called Brizzy's photograph of the two men absolutely the best actionable lead we've had, but added it could still be a nice story, which isn't true. (laughs) Or the photograph could be a misdirection aimed at steering the investigation away from their actual whereabouts. Michael Dyke, the last deputy marshal assigned to the case, said Brizzy was a drug smuggler and a con man who was suspicious of his account. Brizzy's widow said that she never heard him mention seeing the Anglin brothers in Rio and that he was a con man who was prone to making up stories. An expert working for the US Marshal's Service did not believe the photograph was legitimate. Dyke said measurements of the physical characteristics of the Anglin brothers indicate that they are not the men in the photo, but he acknowledged the difficulty in making a definitive determination and ruling it out as a valid lead. In January 2020, people are still obsessed and still doing stuff about this. An Irish, good old Irish, creative agency and AI specialists at Identi... I don't know how they would pronounce it. Identv probably used facial recognition techniques to conclude that the men in the photo were John and Clarence Anglin. I don't know, man. Can we trust AI? I don't know. Robert Anglin Anglin reportedly told family members before his death in 2010 that he had been in contact with John and Clarence from 1963 until approximately 1987. Surviving family members who said they have heard nothing since Robert's last contact with the brothers in 1987 
announced plans to travel to Brazil to conduct a personal search. But Roderick cautioned that they could be arrested by Brazilian authorities because the Alcatraz escape remains an open Interpol case. But I don't know how them going over there looking for them would make them arrestable. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I guess an interesting point. Maybe it's like... I don't know. I guess it, it can't really be considered like interfering with the investigation, can it? Or I don't think so. Like if you're over there, like and if they ask you, "What are you doing?" I'm here for a holiday. <laughs> I'm in Brazil. I'm here to find criminals. I'm, having, I'm having fun. I'm not looking for my missing family members who escaped a prison. No. Uh, oh, sorry, what was that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in 2018, the FBI confirmed the existence of a letter allegedly written by John Anglin and received by the San Francisco Police Department in 2013. The writer asserted that Frank Morris died in 2008 and was buried in Alexandria under a different name, and Clarence Anglin died in 2011. His purpose in writing the letter, he said, was to negotiate his surrender in exchange for medical treatment of his cancer. The letter's authenticity was deemed inconclusive. Which means they don't think they did anything about it. Which is like... Okay. In a 2019 episode of the series Mission Declassified, investigative journalist Christoph Putzel corroborated much of the information released by the FBI and other sources, including the raft found on Angel Island. He quoted various reports mentioning a blue Chevrolet of the same description as the one stolen after the escape spotted in Oklahoma, Indiana, Ohio, and South Carolina, where three months after the escape, three men matching the escapee's description attempted to acquire a residence in the woods. That's the final piece of all this piece because there's so much piece, and I'm so sorry that was so much information. But at the end of the day, it's still a mystery. We don't know if they survived. We don't know if they died. We don't know what happened, what's true, what people either made up because they were hopeful it would do something to the investigation and get people looking for them again or whether they were making it up because they just wanted attention or whether it was <laughs> generally wanting to find them. So all the pills the, the tea. That's on this day. I'm, I'm still stuck on the letter that was sent to the FBI like, that they just wrote off. Honestly, like, okay, I'm not a police officer, <laughs> but if I were, like, they would be like, okay, this, they say this piece is buried here under a different name. Let's figure out who has died in the last X number of months and go through and see if any of them have next of kins, birth certificates, mm -hmm. where they're mm -hmm. from. But, like, obviously resources, money, I get it, time. Okay, mm -hmm. sure. But, like... There's, surely there were things to, that you could do to confirm, you know, little things to follow. Okay. But I don't know. Maybe. Hmm. Maybe I watch too much crime shows <laughs> and I just think I'm a detective <laughs> now. Who knows? I mean, it's, it's a totally reasonable thing that you just said that, you know, time, money, resources, etc. I get it. But at the same time, you know, what if this this is one of the guys that escaped and you're just kind of going, nah. And he's actually, like, crying out for help, you know, in a, to he wants to surrender in exchange for, you know, um, what's it called? 
uh, relief, a little bit of relief from his cancer. Mm-hmm. And he's like, listen, there's there's nobody else left. It's just me. I'm dying. I got nothing else to hide. I may as well fess up, which would make sense. And they're just kind of going, no. So you're <laughs> telling me they didn't mm-hmm. respond to this guy. And I found, yeah, no called- information that they followed it up or that they that anything came of it. But surely there would be a um an address or maybe like a you know to respond to this drop the letter off here kind of thing and then that should kind of give more of a okay maybe we should actually follow this up because we've got a little bit of evidence kind of thing well i think based off of the research and reading about it and what we have all just talked about i think that there's definitely a mentality of they're dead they died anything that comes through that says it's them it's not true because we know they drowned so i think that's a possibility like even with why have an investigation for 17 years if you just have you know come to a conclusion that they're dead why would you bother i think that yeah i don't know i don't know it just doesn't make sense Mm. what are they hiding what are the fbi (laughs) what's happening here what's going on but (laughs) That's all of the information. I'm. I hope that was interesting. I know that was a lot of information, and the majority of the information was like tea and rumors about their whereabouts <laughs> after the escape. But I just find that interesting of like this, you know, things that pop up and um, what's true, what's not, what do you believe, what you don't believe, and I guess everyone's going to have a different opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, like I personally am torn because part of me. The, the reason I can't say for certain that they didn't survive it is this whole d- d- like um reasoning of like, oh the wallet was found, therefore they died. And it's like that makes no sense. Like I drop stuff all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Like that makes no s- anyway. So that's the one thing that makes me think I think they probably most likely did survive. But then at the same time, how do they get away? without being spotted or found for so long but in the and again it's the era it's the 60s where mm-hmm. like forging paperwork is super easy like uh, i think um i saw a show where they were talking about um creating fake identities and it was so they were so trustworthy and it was all kind of um not i don't want to say it's innocent but like they would just for example um in like a local graveyard there would be a headstone of, of a baby that like died at birth or a few days old and they would take that name if, mm-hmm. it, if they were born at a similar time so like if they were born like 1920 and this baby was born and then died in 1920 they would contact like the i don't know the people with birth certificates and stuff and say oh my name is this which is the name on the headstone i was born 1920 there's the date i've lost my birth certificate and they will just reissue them one and then they've got a whole new identity wow like, that is incredibly trusting yeah <laughs> but also i think it's That's because they didn't have those systems in place where they were like yeah how do they verify that how do they check that because mm-hmm. all these forms of anyway i'm ranting now why did again, they not cross-reference these things <laughs> impossible to do these days with photos and the internet and you basically your identity is it's yours <laughs> like <laughs> you can't fake it i don't think i mean probably can i don't know mm-hmm. i'm showing my naive innocent side or like i don't know anything <laughs> about all this stuff 
Um, anyway, that's that's it. What do you think? Dead, alive, thrive. I think. <laughs> I think that they actually managed to escape and they survived. And I agree with the whole like wallet thing that just because just because they dropped it doesn't mean they're dead. Like I I dropped my wallet yesterday. It doesn't mean I died. So <laughs> no man drowns without his wallet. <laughs> <laughs> how on earth are we gonna have a positive id but no i think that they actually managed to survive they got onto the mainland and i think they actually escaped and they did a successful job of it and there's a part of me that thinks that maybe that letter to the fbi was real Mm. you know and like that was their one chance and they didn't follow it up and now your boy's dead so they just have no yeah so i think Mm. that they miss their opportunity again we're not fbi agents so we don't know the true t or whatever is like you know classified or anything like that um in conjunction with this case but just from an outside point of view hearing what we've heard so far there's no reason that they wouldn't have survived yes true it's just hard to uh yeah i can't make up my mind i'm one of those pieces i need solid evidence (laughs) (laughs) need all the tea i need everything to be Mm -hmm. lined up but let us know what you think i'm gonna i'm gonna post some pictures on our insta for the story including their dummy heads which are quite impressive honestly uh so go over to our instagram have a look at that and leave your thoughts did they drown did they survive love to hear it any other little tidbits you've heard about this story maybe that i didn't talk about any facts or anything like that share please and also yeah tell us if people were released from alcatraz because we can't be bothered to look it up and i'm assuming they were but like why would you put someone in such a big beastly place if they're so Mm -hmm. big and terrible and then let them go but that's a good tea yeah i've never heard of anyone actually leaving alcatraz so it just makes zero sense to me (laughs) i'm just like did they leave them are we sure Uh, i don't know (laughs) anyway great to be back after a little break sorry we took a while but life happens um follow us interact we i'm I'm lonely so please come talk to me oh bless me no it's all good um i'm fine trust me i'm fine um yeah leave us uh thoughts on the story if you want to hear something in particular let us also know because you know i'd like to hear what people are interested in hearing otherwise i'm just going to keep talking about things that i like <laughs> that's it's a bit you, selfish of me about but dead you know people, dead people, <laughs> movies dead people so um Come, come say hi, talk. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening this time round. I've been Tess. I've been Steph. We've been stunning. Thank you, everyone. As usual. Oh, <laughs> always so stunning. Hopefully we'll uh, get one, another piece out to you soon and won't be five months time. <laughs> hopefully we'll be a bit sooner than that. But uh, yep. yeah, we'll hopefully... Have you back next time. Bye. Bye.